This is the day that the Lord has made, and in it we can rejoice and be glad that He is our God and that Jesus Christ is our risen Savior. This is the day that we observe as Resurrection Sunday. It is the culmination of all the events, if you have followed along chronologically this past week, of the triumphal entry of Jesus into the holy city, of the Last Supper in that upper room. Jesus' trial has taken place. His death we have observed through the events of this past week. He has been buried and now He is resurrected from the dead. Many people had seen with their eyes Jesus after the resurrection, but they did not really see the resurrected Jesus. I know that sounds like a rather cryptic sort of way of saying we can see something and yet not really see something. We can see it with our eyes physically, but not really see and know and understand what we have seen. So it was with a couple women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who came to the grave to look into that grave and look at that grave. And we read in Matthew 28, Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, and angel had come of the Lord and descended from heaven and had rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance, we read, was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women as they approached, Don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking For Jesus who has been crucified. And they said. Come see the place. Where he was lying. Come see the place where he was laid. A few days ago. Leaving the empty tomb. They quickly with fear. And scriptures say with great joy. Ran into the resurrected Lord, as they were going to make these announcements that Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And then He says, There they will see Me. Peter, hearing that report, ran quickly to the empty tomb. saw the linen wrappings that were there as if Jesus had uh, simply evaporated out of those wrappings. They were there as they had been placed around Him, as Jesus had left behind. And He left in wonder about what He had just seen and what had happened. For some who saw Jesus, seeing was believing, but it wasn't really believing everything that Jesus had told them would be. We see in the Scriptures that there are those who have ears to hear, those who have eyes to see, 
but do not hear and do not see. You might remember a man by the name of Ezekiel who uh, said, Son of man, you live in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but do not see and ears to hear but do not hear for they are a rebellious house. You see, this has been going on for centuries, for ages. Jesus, as He came upon the earthly scene during His earthly ministry, began speaking in parables so that those who had ears to hear and eyes to see would see and hear and know the message of the gospel that the kingdom had come. Sometimes people do see, but do not really see. We can see with our eyes and not really see what we are seeing. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke of hearing with our ears, but not really listening. This week, I'm going to ask you this question, don't you see? Because we can see with our eyes and not really see. Don't you see? Don't you understand? That Jesus is not here. He is risen. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2 verses 5 through 9. As we consider these words of the writer of Hebrews. Asking. About what we see. Chapter 2 beginning at verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for every one. The grass withers, the flowers fade and fall, but these words of our Lord God endure forever. Heavenly Father, enable us, Lord, to fix our eyes upon Jesus, author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, is resurrected from the dead and is seated even now at the right hand of power and authority. Enable us to see, truly see, and know and believe that He is our salvation and our life. 
We pray in his name. Amen. God has given each one of us eyes to see. Eyes to see that we might fix our eyes upon the one who is our Savior. We can see physically what we do see, but seeing can also mean, as you've hopefully gathered over the past couple minutes, perceiving, understanding what we see, fixing our eyes, not only focusing them upon the one who is before us, but understanding why he is before us and who he is and what he has done on our behalf. In the previous verses of this sermon to the Hebrews, we've been confronted with this superiority of Christ, particularly his superiority to the angels. We've been exhorted to listen and encouraged to respond, to know him, to embrace his gospel. The writer of Hebrews says, which is such a great salvation. God has put all creation under the sovereign control of this one, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. A man by the name of Abraham Kuyper summarizes this thought so very well. Uh, He was prime minister of the Netherlands back in the early 1900s, having established uh, during that time the Reformed churches there in the Netherlands, he said this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Everything belongs to Jesus We were reminded last week that the King has come. That He is coming and that He will come again. That Jesus the Christ who is the Son of God, who rules over everything and calls it mine as King of kings and Lord of lords, when He comes again, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. Everything, the writer of Hebrews says, has been made subject to Him according to the author here. Here is the one who has been given a name above all names, who subdues us to Himself, who rules us, who defends us, who conquers and restrains both His and our enemies. He intercedes for us at the right hand of God, our Father. He is a faithful high priest who has experienced all that we experience yet without sin. This is a point particularly made in connection with Christ's incarnation in Him taking on our human flesh, our human nature in becoming flesh and blood on our behalf, His suffering on our behalf, His death on our behalf, His resurrection on our behalf. So what is it here that we are being asked to see If we look very superficially, simply read the Scriptures here. 
We are being asked to see that man is the crowning glory of God's creation. The first thing that we see here is a quote from Psalm 8. You should have recognized that as our responsive reading that's on the back of your hymnal there this morning. Going back to that psalm, we see that it is a psalm that celebrates the fact that though the Lord has made the heavens and the earth, the stars and the heavenly world, though man is small by comparison to this huge God that can't be contained, man is the crown of creation. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation. Which should remind us that all Scripture is inspired by God. Genesis to Revelation. And as creation is mentioned here, it ought to bring to mind that creation account in Genesis. It's interesting there. That those things that we consider so vast and mighty above us and beyond us, God describes with a very short, simple sentence. Going back to Genesis 1, we see the biggest, most expansive things in all creation are talked about the least. The sun, the moon, and the stars, the billions and billions of stars that are out there that are given a sentence, only a phrase, and yet an entire uh, half a chapter is given to the creation of man. What is man that you are mindful of him? There in Genesis we see God creating man. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let man rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the cattle and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing over the earth. And he goes on and he says, let them rule. And we look around us today. And it seems, especially since uh, last March, that we are not in control. As if we ever were after the fall. That everything seems to be out of control in the world that is around us. And yet we are told to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, all creation, to subdue it. We don't feel like we're ruling over anything, do we? When we're confronted with physical illnesses, with even death itself. Some of you may remember a TV series way back in 1980s. I have to say that, lest some of you think I was around in the 1880s. <laughs> 1980s. A PBS series that you can, you can uh, look at even now, if you're interested, with the host, Carl Sagan. And in that series... Uh, he looks at the world about us, at the universe around us, and he says this, almost in every one of those uh, segments of that series, he says, the cosmos is all there is, is all there ever was, 
is all there ever will be. Now, if you listen to that, it is a very humanistic view and understanding of this creation. The inference there is that we as human beings are sort of lost in this gigantic, ever-evolving machine called the cosmos in which we are just a tiny part and God's word tells us different. Psalm 8 says, and I paraphrase here, though I have made massive things in my creation, God speaking, you, O man, are the crown of my creation. You are the one thing that I love and care most about. So Psalm 8 celebrates the fact that man created in the image of God is the crown, is the pinnacle of his creation. He is the one who is prophet and priest and king as Adam, our first man, was called to be prophet in that he had true knowledge of God. He was called to be a priest in the sense that he was able to freely and openly offer prayer and praise to God. He was called to be a king in that he was called to rule over God's creation with glory and honor. Adam had perfect communion with God and Eve did as well. Everything was put in subjection under his feet, but something happened. Adam sinned as our covenant head and representative of all mankind and we see, we experience the consequences of that sin even now today. Nothing seems to be in control. Everything seems to be out of control. We feel so insignificant. So the inspired writer of Hebrews does something really interesting here with Psalm 8. He doesn't apply it directly to man in general. He applies these words to Jesus. Although he is referred to him by inference in the previous verses here in Hebrews, this is the first time in verse 9 that he uses the name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sin. He says, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for, and let me propose this to you, this everyone, which we see as one word, which sort of indicates everybody, should be emphasized as every one. And there's a difference there, a razor's edge difference, but you might have to think about that for a while before you see it. But every one that he has come to seek and to save as Jesus, the one who saves his people from their sin. God has made him a little lower than the angels for a time as he took upon himself human flesh, a true body and a reasonable soul. 
He has appointed Him over the works of God's hands. He has put all things in subjection under His feet. All things are subject to Him. And there is nothing that is not subject to Him. Here we have, uh, we often talk about our salvation in terms of uh, there being a divine transfer of our sin being placed upon Jesus and His salvation being put to our account, being clothed with His righteousness. But here, there is a divine transfer in the responsibilities of prophet, priest, and king. Of subduing and ruling and conquering all creation. For now, Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. The work that God gave man to do and He failed to do is completed in Christ's work as our prophet, priest, and king. Speaking the very word of God, Jesus does. Offering up Himself as a holy and living sacrifice. Interceding for us as a great high priest. Ruling and defending us as a king over all creation. Christ came to do what we did not do in Adam and cannot do because of Adam. But we can't blame Him for everything. We still sin in thought and word and deed. But all these things that were originally intended for us, as Psalm 8 describes, but were lost by us in the fall, Christ came to restore. He fulfills them perfectly so that everyone who trusts in Him by God's grace through faith alone, in Him alone, is restored to a position of holiness and responsibility, glory and rule, that we might be called the righteousness of God. Everything given to the first Adam, compromised by his fall, by his sin, is restored for everyone who now lives through a saving relationship with that last Adam, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2 verse 8 uses this phrase but now as he says you have put all things in subjection under his feet for in subjecting all things to him he left nothing that is not subject to him but now what do we see around us we don't see all things subjected to him with our eyes He's asking that with our hearts we see and know that even in the midst of things that are spinning out of control, He is still in control. Because such a great salvation is a present reality for us. We even now, through Jesus Christ, reign with Him. Where He is, those who are in Him reign in glory. We look around us and see things in this world that seem so out of control. Our families, our homes, our lives, our businesses, everything. From the Far East to the West Coast, it seems like there is trouble and trials and tribulation everywhere, and that we should expect. But Jesus said, be of good cheer. Because I have overcome the world, and where He is, where are you? If you are in Him, you are with Him. 
So you too are overcomers in this world. We see him and know that even when it looks like Christ is not in control, that he is not ruling and defending his people and their honor, that those who see with eyes of faith must never, ever, 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 ever doubt that the last Adam rules and those who are in him through faith rule with him and in him and through him. God made man to rule. And I'm using that three-letter word man to mean mankind. Doesn't exclude anyone. But man sinned and lost what God had originally intended for him. And man's rule can only be honestly and truthfully and faithfully restored in Jesus Christ and is restored. A present reality for all those who trust in Him by God's grace alone. But how is it that God has established Jesus' rule? And that's the interesting part as we look at verse 9 here. What do we see? But we do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned Him with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God He might taste death death for everyone. How does God reverse the effects of the fall? How is it that He restores glory and honor to His creation? Through the Son of man's humiliation, He came, He lived as we lived, yet without sin. The very idea of an infinite, eternal God Descending into frail human flesh was an idea that astonished many people. I'm reminded of one man, C.S. Lewis. Some of you, I know, have been reading some of his work. Mere Christianity is one of those that I read with a group of 10th graders back in Colorado Springs. In Mere Christianity, Lewis remarks that this Jesus becoming human flesh was more a miracle than if a human should descend into the form of a slug. Now, that's not to demean what Jesus has done, but you stop and think. What if you became a slug? I was reminded this past week what I used to do with slugs when I saw them crawling up the wall or on the path. The idea of Jesus becoming incarnate, born of the Virgin Mary, taking on human flesh, not considering God something, equality with God, something to be held on to, but humbled Himself, taking on the likeness of our human flesh, our real human flesh, not just appearing to be human, but really being human and really being divine. And we're going to, if you don't mind me saying this, flesh out that thought next week and the following as we continue on here in Hebrews. But because of His suffering and death, He was crowned with glory and honor so that He might taste death for every one of those He came to seek and to save. 
If Jesus is the answer here, remember I said a few weeks ago, if ever in doubt, what do you say? Jesus, right? That's always the answer to a theological question. Jesus, if He is the answer, then we can ask, well, what is the question? If He is the answer, what is the question? There are two questions that presented to people will often enable you to see where they stand with their understanding of salvation. The first question, and these are, these are not mine, they're from uh, Evangelism Explosion out of uh, D. James Kennedy Coral Gables uh, there in, in Florida. Have you come to a place, make this personal, have you come to a place in your spiritual life where you can say you know for certain that if you were to die today, you would go to heaven? Yes or no? Second question. Now you're standing there before God. Suppose that you were to die today and stand before God. And he were to say to you, why should I let you in? What would you say? There you go. Somebody said it. Jesus. Jesus is the answer. We're so indoctrinated across this Bible belt to say the right answers when a preacher asks those sorts of questions. Why is the gospel the way it is? Why is it that Christ had to die on the cross? Why is it that I have to trust in Him and Him alone for my salvation? Why? Because He tasted death in your place. He did the work that you were called to do. So in a sense, don't get me wrong here, I don't believe that our salvation is by works, but it is by Christ's work. Our works are evidence of our saving grace. So, don't you see? Don't you see that when we look at Jesus in His incarnation, that we are reminded of the great price that He paid that we might live? Don't you see that He is our only hope for salvation? Don't you see and understand? When we see Jesus in His incarnation, as one now seated at the right hand of God, we are reminded of the great price that He paid. For today, as we look at the front of your bulletin, there's a picture of an empty tomb. As we look at that empty tomb, do you see simply... An empty tomb? Do we see just a place where Jesus was laid? Or do we see evidence of a risen, living Savior, a conquering King, and a reigning, resurrected Lord? Don't you see and know and understand that He is not here? He is risen. And because He has risen, We live in Him and through Him.
even today. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray that we, each of us, would not only have these physical eyes to see the world around us, that empty tomb and the risen Savior, but see and know with the eyes of our heart that He is our life and our salvation. Father, we give You ourselves this morning and pray that You would know our struggles as we know that You do. That You would know the very depths of our hearts and the desires of our souls that we would be conformed to the image and the likeness of the one who is Jesus Christ, our Lord and our conquering King. For he is not here. He is risen, just as he said. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.